0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast, fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What was the most respected guild that medieval women could join? How could plucking your eyebrows in the Middle Ages land you in hell? And why did medieval people believe that older women's looks could kill? In our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode, medievalist Dr. Eleanor Yaniger answers your questions about the lives and livelihoods of medieval women. Eleanor is the author of a new book on medieval women, The Once and Future Sex, and she told Emily Briffitt about everything from the trials of childbirth and menstruation to the best places for women to party in the
2: medieval period.
1: Hello, Eleanor. It's an absolute pleasure to be chatting with you today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really looking forward to it.
1: So we're going to be talking all about medieval women and their lives. But I think the first question to probably ask you is, what was a standard day in the life for a medieval woman? Is there a standard day in the
2: life? Well, so the standard medieval woman is a peasant, right? So we estimate that about 80 to 85% of the European population in the medieval period are peasants, uh, Contrary to popular opinion, that doesn't mean that they are necessarily poor. What it means is that they are farmers. So they wake up on the farm, probably around when their roosters do, and uh, they get out there and get cracking pretty much right away. Breakfast is going to be the first thing that they get on with, and that a lot of the time is bread leftover from yesterday. You might soak a bit of that uh, in small beer because you're going to start your day with drinking lots of low-alcohol beer. Not underlined because uh, the water is unsafe to drink, but because it is the equivalent of like an energy drink. So, you know, it's got lots of calories. They're about to go do a bunch of backbreaking labor outside. And what are you going to do out there? Well, the first point of order is probably going to be feeding animals. And animal husbandry more specifically is thought of as the realm of women. So looking after any of the chickens, looking after livestock, uh, things like milking probably have to happen absolutely right away. So tending to animals is going to be the number one thing because, you know, everybody's got to eat. And then it really depends on what season it is because if it is springtime, then you're probably going to be doing a lot of planting, getting seeds in the ground. Um, Maybe you are going to be helping along with plowing because we know that women do help with plowing. Uh, it tends to be men a little bit more often, but if you've got your own farm and you're a woman, you're going to be plowing just as well. Or if you and your husband have just started out really recently and you don't have other farm hands, then yep, there you go. You're like, gra- grab a hold <laughs> of the draft animal. Uh, the, it'll be an ox in the earlier medieval period and then a horse later on. And then uh, you'll get some seeds in the ground. Um, later in the year, then there are things like mowing hay is a really big activity that happens in, say, July and August. So getting all of uh, the wheat in, things like that. A lot of harvesting goes on in uh, kind of September, October. Um, And then in November and December, again, we have things like slaughtering animals. So getting your meat stores ready for the winter, that becomes a really big thing. In the winter, things are a little bit more chilled out because uh, if they're still on the ground, there's only so much you have to do on the farm. But uh, again, those cows are going to have to get milked every single morning. So that is just like the work work. However, on top of that, you also have all of the household chores, which are more specifically conceived of as being women's work. So if you've got children, you're going to be looking after them all day long as well. And it's really common for mothers to do kind of really uh, rudimentary instruction for children. So, you know, if you know your alphabet, that sort of thing, you'll, you'll teach your children that they need to be fed, they need to be clothed, they need to be pointed in the right direction and out of harm's way, told to play. You know, over there, this sort of thing. Um, When they're older, they'll start uh, helping out in the fields, though. On top of this, you then also have stuff like cooking is all going to come down to women. So, you know, that bread that you ate that was left over from yesterday, you're baking a new loaf at some point in time. And there's quite there's rather a lot of baking happening all the time. You probably make the beer yourself. Uh, women are specifically re- seen as being responsible for brewing a lot of the time, so you'll probably have to check in on your beer at some point in time during the day. And then there's just cooking things generally. Uh, one really interesting thing about uh, medieval people is that they often just have a big pot of what we call pottage going on over the fire at all times, which is sort of like a porridge that's made with whatever you have left over. And so you're going to keep the pottage going. And so when your husband comes in from the fields and he's starving and you don't have dinner ready, you can say, oh, we'll have some pottage really quickly, you know, that, that this sort of thing. So looking after the food, making sure there's enough firewood, things like this. So everything that you would expect uh, somebody to be taking care of when they get home from work generally is going on, but it's much more labor intensive. So there are also these other things on top of that, like, well, you know, you make all of the clothing for everyone In your house. And on top of that, you probably make the cloth that the clothing is made out of. So women are seen as being responsible a lot of time for weaving. So, you know, if you need new linens for the summer, you probably see through the entire process of making those from growing the flax in the field to spinning that into thread to making that into cloth to cutting that out to sewing it which is just impossibly difficult. It's absolutely tons of work. And here in England, there would also be rather a lot of emphasis here placed on wool, because uh, a good way of sort of seeing medieval England is we're, we're kind of a uh, petro state, but for wool. You know, we've got this really high value product that everybody else on the continent wants, which is, uh, you know, the wool from sheep. So you probably shear some sheep. You probably are carding that wool, spinning it into thread, and then making things out of that as well. So there's just a whole range of chores that we completely take for granted because we're able to, you know, pop to the shop. And, and buy a dress if we need one. We don't have to make one all the way through. So there's just an absolute surfeit of work to be done at all times. Um, and it makes me tired just thinking about it. I have no idea how they got through it all. And then had any time uh, for play or relaxation or or any nice time at all. It's crazy.
1: It's completely crazy. It seems like they almost didn't have enough time in the day. Another question that I'd really like to ask you about, what about Job opportunities or opportunities for work outside of on the fields or within the
2: home. So one of the really common ways that women have work, um, especially you know if they're peasants and that sort of thing, um, is by taking on service in somebody else's house. So there might be a really wealthy peasant near you, which is common. This is you know the, the gentry we often say. Uh, so you know you are really wealthy, you own a lot of land, but you're not noble. And these women often have lots of work going for other women. So I'm young lady can start out as being a dairy maid, So you would work more particularly for women who have like lots of cows and there's, you know, a lot of cheese making to be done and a lot of milking to be done. You might also have uh, chambermaids and they will help out more particularly with things like sewing or embroidering, kind of keeping things like that going in a household. Younger women can also be employed as cooks or in kitchens. There's like plenty of scullery maids around the shop, you know, uh, helping out there. And then there are more large production and large scale breweries as well so um hey if you learned how to make beer with your mom, you might be able to go down the road and get a job at the ladies local brewery you know that sort of a thing and similarly cloth production is really big job for women so if somebody is really got a huge flax field and they are making a lot of linen then you could probably find employment down there helping out with that there are also women who do jobs that other people don't really want to do a big one for this is washerwomen uh, because washing clothes is is just a whole ordeal in the medieval period. It takes absolute days. You kind of like layer up your clothing with ash and eggshells and soak it, um, and you know it's all very, very heavy. And you oftentimes have to drag it down to a laundry house or down to a river or something like that to rinse it all out. So this is a job that everybody doesn't want to do, and they're really happy when the washerwoman uh, comes around. So she's uh, one of everybody's favorite people, and and there's a really low bar of entry into these professions. So, you know, these are things that you probably have some experience with just growing up in a household. You'll be helping your mom out with all these things. And there are going to be some people in your local community, no matter where you are, who are looking for this. So if your parents can spare your hands on the farm, it's a really great way of bringing cash back into the family. You know, sometimes even if they can't, you know, girls can run off and, you know, become a scullery maid somewhere and start sort of climbing the ranks of serving in houses. Because it is a good way to make a good living to be an actual servant. And so that sometimes is seen as a little bit more... Oh, I don't know, glamorous than just helping your parents with the ploughing, I suppose.
1: This is something that you've hinted at a little bit. We've had a question from someone on Instagram asking how equal were men and women regarding the sort of the daily work? Mm. Were they respected in the same way at all?
2: <sighs> I, I wish that I had a happier answer to this. So, um, in, there are a lot of jobs where men and women are doing the same thing. So, um, if we uh, are looking at peasants, for example, as I say, women are doing all the things that men are, plus a whole bunch of other things that men aren't doing. Um, if we're talking about sort of middle class people, so artisans say, if you are a member of a guild and, I don't know, let's say you're a glover, so you make gloves, big deal in the medieval period, um, your wife is going to do pretty much all the same things that you do. So she'll be making gloves alongside you the entire time. On top of that, it's expected that women are going to be keeping the books. So bookkeeping and uh, just kind of like looking after finances is seen as being expressly feminine. So women are really help meets at this time. And they are presumed to be involved in the same uh, sort of work as their husbands are. And that's, you know, as a result, we see women, for example, will marry along guild lines. So if your dad is a glover, then you're going to marry somebody who's a glover because you grew up and you know the profession and everybody knows that they're, they're going to want their wife to help out with that. But women are not uh, underlined or respected at the same level as men in most guilds. So for a start, oftentimes women can't join guilds. They're just expressly forbidden from doing so. Sometimes, however, if your husband is a guild member and you help him out with the craft and he dies, you can then be brought into the guild in his place. So that's that's a really nice thing uh, for women. However, if you then remarry, you're out of the guild again, and uh, you know maybe you've married someone else within the guild, and so your new husband uh, he takes it on. But you basically lose it as soon as you have marital status that does that. And then there are kind of varying levels of this. So, for example, there's a guild in Paris for bathhousekeepers. and women are really involved in bath housekeeping. We know this for a fact, um, and they can be members of the guild. However, they can only. Claim Climb the ranks so far. So there's sort of like a big centralized committee at the very top of all the bathhouse keepers and women are not allowed to be on that final committee. But at the same time there are some guilds that are only women. So for example, silk making is a profession that is dominated by women and men are basically not allowed in so if you're a silk weaver and you're in a guild you're incredibly respected you're making an incredibly high value product and men are just not even allowed to to be involved at all whatsoever And this whole thing can be a bit frustrating for us when we're trying to learn the history of women who are at work because sometimes we don't even know their names. You know, I've got records of women who are doing incredibly complex work, uh, you know, in the Holy Roman Empire. And they speak a couple of languages and you can see that they're changing money across lands and, you know, they're doing really high level work. And I don't know what their names are. I just know the names of their husbands. So, you know, there's this phenomenon, which we call coverture, where women's names are just kind of lost when they marry. And so it can be a real a real hindrance to learning more. Um, and unfortunately, it just also does show you a little bit about the society where the important thing is who you're married to, not who you are.
1: So from this, we've got two questions, both from Instagram, one by Holly Dolly Duda and one from Jess Jr. twenty seven. And they've basically asked about the records that we have of medieval women. They've asked about, are there any first-hand accounts that exist? Are there any that aren't court records? And how close can we really get to accessing women's lives and understanding them?
2: So obviously one of the big things about medieval records is we're going to hear more particularly from rich women. Right. So if you're going to have any sources that are left over, this is a woman who can read and write. And those are few and far between, Um, even at incredibly high echelons of society. So, for example, um, among the nobility or royalty, often those women can read but not write. Uh, But, you know, they're very, very well off. They often have scribes. Who write for them. And it'll be quite funny because we get these letters of uh, damsels so that, you know, you're, you're sent away to court. And there'll be little teenage girls kind of negotiating with their mums and saying that they need more money for pearls, you know. And uh, their mums will be upbraiding them for not writing home enough. And they'll say, well, you know uh, that my scribe was on holiday. So how, how was I supposed to write, you know, things like this? So we do get to see some really nice glimpses of how teenagers have always been teenagers uh, from things like correspondence. So one of the groups that we end up hearing a lot from is actually middle-class women, because middle-class women are working in jobs where they're expected to be able to read and write. They're going to have to send communications back and forth. They're going to have to bookkeep things like this. And uh, we have good records of what they're doing in terms of business. Um, We also get um, women authors. This certainly happens um, at several times, and so you'll you'll see people, for example, like uh, Christine de Pizan, uh, who writes a really famous book, uh, "The City of Women," which is really cool, and, it, and it's kind of a <laughs> an imaginary thing about it, a world with no men. But um, she also writes a a bit about what um, daily life is like for noble women. And it's a really great and interesting source because she really breaks down all the work that goes into this. And it just kind of records all these things. So we know rather a lot about that. But one of the things about medieval records more generally is that it doesn't matter if we're talking about women or we're talking about men. By the time we have a written record of what's going on for them, they're remarkable right? Uh, Because it's not that common to be literate. And also, it's not that common just for things to survive that long. One of the things that we have to keep in mind about sources is how long ago the medieval period was, right? So even at the the very last gas of the medieval period, we're talking about 600 years ago. And what I always say is, you know, in a time, I guess now we're kind of swapping to online bills and things. You know, think about every time you move house, how you say, okay, well, I don't need every one of my gas bills, you know, I don't need every, you know, every old birthday card that's probably not going to move with me. And we throw all those things out. Think about that as a process over 600 years, right? Like, who who is going to have their correspondence saved? Who is going to have uh, these particular notes set aside? And it has to be people who have a lot of money and they have a lot of space. And then plus um, a thing to keep in mind is that things really burnt down a lot in the past, when you don't have a fire brigade and it's a world where fire is how you see at night and things like that. We have a lot of fire, so we, we lose a lot of things. So all of this is to say that we do lose a lot of information about women, unfortunately, um, because just of how source survival works. And then when we do get these records, it tends to be Fancy women. Fancy women doing fancy things, which is cool, and I love that. But a lot of the time when we do find out about ordinary women, it's because, you know, they've transgressed in some way. So, you know, they've they've gotten in trouble, and so we have a court record about um, how they're selling bread below weight. Or, you know, more particularly, we might find out about, like, a a very scandalous woman who, you know, is found having affairs or, or this sort of thing. So, that, though, I kind of like because it's nice to see that there's all these women out there behaving badly and not being, you know, kind of meek little ladies. You know, we, we get to hear rather a lot about the women who are brawling in the streets with their neighbors because it causes a commotion and this sort of thing. So um a lot of complex, interesting women out there, but we just kind of have to really sift through in order to find out anything about them.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You
2: need Indeed.
1: Are we still perhaps fighting against any popular perceptions of medieval women?
2: Oh, are we ever? (laughs) So, you know, one of the the big issues that we have with the medieval period generally is that this is a period that isn't taught um, in any kind of um, really detailed form. You know, you're really lucky here if you you learn a little bit about Magna Carta, uh, you're going to learn a little bit about the Black Death, and then That's what's going to happen immediately. So um, we we kind of rush, rush, rush through the medieval period in order to get up to the early modern period. And, And I can understand why, because that's when England becomes really important on a world stage, right? So a lot of people don't get the chance to sit down and learn about medieval history. And that means that they fall back on myths that are popularized in varying things. So one thing I have to really fight against, for example, is the idea that in the Middle Ages, women were constantly being accused of witchcraft, which is is um, an early modern thing. It's not medieval at all. Now, people thought women did magic and there would be a lot of concern about this. You get, um, for example, in penitentials, which are a kind of guidebook that priests use in order to say, well, this is how many uh, days of penance you should give for varying sins or here's varying questions you can ask when people come in to confess. You will have all these questions for women specifically about doing kind of love magic. So um, are you kneading bread down your body and then feeding it to your husband to make him fall more in love with you, you know, and, and you'll get in trouble for that? Um, or, you know, are you chanting things while you weave cloth so that it will intentionally mess the cloth up? You know, and you can get in trouble for that. So there is an idea that women are doing magic, but you just kind of get this slap on the wrist where it's like, well, stop doing that. Stop doing love magic to your, to your husband, things like this. Um, and it's not until much, much, much later in the medieval period and then really in the early modern period that the idea of the witch as we kind of know her in popular culture comes about. And so this is an example where things get a lot worse for women in the medieval period. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that anyone is saying that magic doesn't exist in the medieval period or that women aren't up to naughty things with it. But nobody thinks that, you know, they're out here worshiping the devil and, you know, women aren't being hung in their dozens in the medieval period. That's a modern thing not not a a medieval thing. Um, Similarly, I think that there is a tendency to kind of always think about the past and how women are treated in it as necessarily worse than now. Um, And there are certain things, for example, that were a little less repressed than they were in the modern period. And one of those big ones is abortion, actually. So throughout the medieval period, You know, abortion is nobody's favorite thing, but um, the church is really concerned more particularly with infanticide. um, And if you have a baby and then kill it, which is sadly somewhat common in the medieval period, because if you can't afford a baby, you can't afford a baby. So the church kind of has a a first trimester and you're you're all right policy. You definitely have to do some penance. It's no one should thinks that you really should be doing it. But on the other hand, it's much, much better than infanticide. And so church policy is a lot less stringent than it becomes in the modern period. And it's not until the modern period when you kind of invent different forms of Christianity that there becomes a kind of like a spiritual arms race between Protestants and Catholics to see who can be the most holy. And Protestants will say, oh, well, the church, they're always letting people do abortions. And then the church says, no, we don't. We don't. No, we don't at all. So it's very important that we kind of have a look at these things and realize that not everything is always this process of becoming better for women. And in certain cases, medieval women have these things that are little more, I suppose, understanding, a little more caring about what the challenges are for women.
1: So to link onto that, we've had so many questions sent in on our social media channels about women's agency in the medieval period. So I'm going to dive into a few of those. We've had one from Roberta Alessandra on Facebook, Madalena Spice on Instagram, and a couple of others, who basically asked how much agency and control over their own lives did they have? And how did this vary over the entire period, and also between different strands of society?
2: Gosh, that's a great question. So uh, there's a huge difference in terms of strands of society, and we actually find that the lower you are, probably the more agency you have, right? Um, So when you are a peasant, no one particularly cares who, who it is you're going to marry, for example. So, you know, the lower rungs of society, you are much more likely to be able to marry the person of your choosing uh, because, you know, well, yeah, you're a peasant, sure. And and yeah, if you're a very wealthy peasant, probably your mom's not going to be super pleased if you decide to marry a poorer peasant. But there's just a lot more leeway and these sort of things are really, you know, common. Then in the middle classes, you know, there is going to be, there will be some pressure. Probably for you to marry, you know, within the guild. But you know, maybe you can marry somebody, you know, slightly akin, uh, so that basically your skills aren't lost. And that is kind of seen as like, well, we, you want to kind of take your skills and be able to apply them in the best way possible. It's the higher echelons of society where you start to really lose uh, your ability to make certain decisions. So, for example, marriage is pretty much out of your hands um, in the noble and royal circles. Now, not entirely. You know, we we know, for example, if there is a match that is going to be made, oftentimes your parents will sort of introduce you and you can kind of have a look at each other and, you know, try to have a conversation. And you do oftentimes have a right to say, Dad, I'm sorry, he's just, there's no way. But there's a lot of pressure in that situation as well. And pretty much for royalty, that's gone entirely. Um, But this is true of men as well. You know, they really don't get a whole lot of say in who it is they're going to marry. You marry for the good of the realm. um, And that's just kind of how things are. So at the upper echelons of society, marriage is much, much more a business contract. Um, Having said that, one big way that women kind of get their agency back um, is surrounds romance more particularly. And we learn a lot about this from what is called the courtly love genre. And courtly love, you know, you kind of think, oh, yeah, knights, damsels in distress, this sort of thing. Yes, that's true. But more particularly, it's an entire genre of literature that is about married women getting together with the single men in their husband's retinue, essentially. And there's this huge kind of underground thing. And everybody knows that people conduct romance affairs with other people. And it's even considered oftentimes that you can't possibly be in love with the people that you are married to. So women will kind of like have romantic poetry read to them and they're having these whole full-blown affairs and, no, and everyone is sort of like, well, you know, that's courtly love, baby. You know, <laughs> it's kind of, it's just sort of seen as one of these things that happens. So you kind of strip things back in that way. Um, there are other societal barriers kind of across the board though. So for example, women are never going to be able to go to university. Um, universities kind of are invented in the 12th century. And in order to attend university, you have to be a member of the clergy, uh, which is kind of a way of keeping rowdy uni students from getting in trouble. It means that you go to church court if you rip a tavern off and run out on your bill, for example. Um, but women can't be clergy members, so they are excluded from university. Now, you can be incredibly highly educated. And once in a while, in an incredibly frustrating way, you'll see these women pop up and they will be teaching at universities so Salerno which is the biggest uh, health school has women who suddenly pop up as professors and I'm like where did she come from who is she I need to know more about her and everyone's like oh yeah she's a really really good physician she's good and I'm like how How, where why did you let her in and they just don't explain it at all so it's kind of frustrating because they treat it like it's normal but it's not normal technically but we can't sort of find our way in there and medical work is actually one of these big ways that women can have rather a lot of agency because a great job for women across the board is a midwifery because you're always going to need a midwife. You know, that's just, that is how things are. Um, and women who are working as midwives are oftentimes like the medical professional that anybody sees. So, you know, it's all well and good if you have somebody who's trained at Salerno. He's not going to be coming to, you know, Northamptonshire. Like, this is not, that's not going to be what happens. You know, the, those sort of people go and they work at courts. The person who will be doing that will be the lady in your neighborhood who's got a garden full of medicinal herbs. She knows how to deliver babies. She knows how to do stitches. She understands, you know, how to make aspirin, you know, things of this manner. And that's like one of these ways that women have rather a lot of power. Um, and that kind of continues uh, throughout the period. Now, women can sometimes be physicians if they, like, buy licenses, and this is kind of like one of those things where it comes into play, like, who has agency or not, because a man, you can be a physician if you're trained up and everyone just goes, oh, hey, this guy's a physician. If you're a woman, there's this extra thing on top, right? But if you are trained up in this way, it gives you an ability to move around, um, and it gives you an ability to kind of uh, show up in varying places and, and take a job. So across the period, it's quite interesting because in the earlier medieval period, like especially really, really early medieval, so we're talking right after Western Rome, quote unquote, falls, right? Um, you've got a huge amount of the population who aren't even really necessarily amalgamated into Christendom yet, so they're still kind of doing old school, like Celtic things in a lot of places or Germanic things, you know, if you're, if you're Frankish, and, and that's quite interesting. But a lot of people get enslaved. Uh, around in this period, you know, like that's what Vikings are doing is kind of going around enslaving people and selling them. And then those people don't really have much of a say in what goes on for them uh, at all. But higher status women have rather a lot of say in this period because having really highly educated women in your family, you're kind of like, I'm sort of like a Roman. Huh? And so they, uh, they wield a lot of power and this sort of thing. That kind of chills out a little bit in the later medieval period when we kind of see large-scale enslavement peter out. But having said that, one of the big problems that half, well, half 70% okay, of the European population are serfs, which means that they are peasants who are not free and they're not allowed to move down the road right so you know it's all well and good if you trade up as a midwife if you can't run off to the city there isn't necessarily anything that you can do and it's more likely that your landlord is going to be paying attention to where you are if you're a midwife because it's like oh I don't want to lose this one right like she's she's the, someone that I can call to my house when I need something so Ironically, all these things that can make you a little bit more money and make you have more freedoms can at times mean that you end up being more oppressed. So it's a really mixed bag. And obviously, you know, if you're in the medieval period, it's probably a lot uh, more fun to be super, super wealthy. But if what we're talking about is being able to determine what it is you do with your life, oftentimes being from the lower classes affords you more say in what you're going to do.
1: Mana Habibi on Facebook has asked whether medieval women had a better quality of life within Europe or outside of Europe? Do we know this at all?
2: Oh, you know, it really depends on what we mean by quality of life, I suppose. Um, and that's a big one, but do you know what? i tell you, if I have to be reincarnated and sent back as a woman to the medieval period, I'm going for the Islamic world. Uh, A lot more freedoms for women under Islam than there were for Christianity. Um, Women can be trained at higher levels and uh, do more schooling. Um, You know, they kind of have a little bit more of a life outside of the house. And uh, one of uh, a really good thing that kind of like underscores this, we see in one of the famous Lives of the Martyrs of Cordoba, a bunch of Christians got killed um, when it was kind of like, a it, you know, there, there's a big Muslim population, there's a big uh, Christian population here. And we have a story about one young saint who decides to convert to Christianity. Um, and she has done this because she keeps telling to, like getting really dressed up and saying, bye mom and dad, I'm off to a party. And they're like, have fun, honey. You, you have a nice time out there. But she's in, she's, meeting with priests in secret and she converts to Christianity. Um, and then they kind of find out about this and she's sort of like asked to please stop being a Christian. She refuses. She gets martyred. It's it's all kind of terrible. But what this shows us is that Muslim girls have this huge ability to kind of just like run around going to parties and things like that. And I tell you what, this would not happen with Christian girls and the, the upper echelons of society. No one is going anywhere without a chaperone. Absolutely not, and you are not meeting with an Imam somewhere on the secret like that is that is not going to happen at all whatsoever. So it tells us a little bit about how there are differing expectations for women in the Muslim world. Um, I know a bit as well about sort of like uh, China at the time and Japan at the time, and more fun can be had there as, as well, oftentimes. Um, but I have to say that you know the Islamic world is really is is where the parties are happening <laughs> in the medieval period uh, to the point where we will also see uh, Christians really worry that girls are going to convert to Islam because it said that um, Islam is much easier to follow than Christianity. Islam is a lot more permissive. It isn't as stringent. There isn't as much fasting as there is in uh, medieval Christianity. Um, And so, people are saying, oh, girls, because they love to party, because girls are kind of seen as being uneasily led astray um, and, uh, like, quite lustful and uh, quite into food, and they're going to be kind of seduced over to Islam because they're going to be able to dress in fine clothes and go to parties, and they're not going to have to be fasting for Lent and fast for advent and fasting and fasting and fasting so um you see this kind of tension and um frankly where that tension pops up that tells me that i want to be on on the party side
1: right? katie bodie on facebook has asked do we know much about the experience of black women in medieval europe
2: um so we know that they're here uh, is, is the first uh, thing to say. And, uh, you know, it's really important for us to kind of keep in mind that Afro-Eurasia is really, really well connected. Now, having said that, it's oftentimes uh, Saharan Africa. So basically everything from, we know a lot about Morocco and, you know, Egypt and even over to Ethiopia at the time. Um, and in fact, uh, medieval Europeans are Fascinated by Ethiopia because they know Ethiopians are Christians, and so they they really like that. So we know that they kind of move around, and so for example, we've certainly found even from uh, the earlier medieval period in like the pre-Norman era up here in England, you get bones of women who we, we were able to identify as African. So even in kind of like the furthest flung reaches of Europe, which you know, Northern England absolutely was, we know Black women are here. It's an interesting one because they sort of, they certainly would have been remarkable. You know, people would have said, oh, well, that's quite interesting. There's an African lady here. Um, but they would also probably perceive it as kind of like really nice for them. It kind of is proof of how cosmopolitan you are if African people are hanging out. You know, that's, that's really quite a nice thing. You know, provided, however, that you're Christian, because a big way that Europeans see the world is they divide everyone into Christians and not Christians, um, which comes to be a bit of a problem for them just in terms of how they see the world when they start making better contact with sub-Saharan Africa in the very late medieval and early modern period, because they kind of just think that everyone in Africa are either Ethiopians and Christian, or they are Muslims and they, they call them Moors. And eventually they get far enough south that they start meeting animist people, so they, they just kind of call them pagan because that's the only concept that they they have. So we know that people are moving around. We know that everyone's kind of has an idea of this and there are really well interconnected trade routes. You are of course going to be much more likely to find black women in the kind of Mediterranean literal where they had always been moving around, and probably less so in places like, um, you know, the lowlands or here in England. But that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It certainly did. Um, and it's interesting because people don't write about it that much. We, you know, we find their skeletons, we find their grave goods, and we say, oh, wow, this, this woman was African. That's really cool. Um, and no one is like, the biggest thing that ever happened was an African woman came to town you know, and, and wrote anything down about it, which shows that it's at least somewhat commonplace.
1: So I'm going to segue here a little bit. And one of the questions we've basically had from Instagram is how the medical profession viewed and treated women. And was this any different from how it viewed and treated men?
2: Mm, And see, medical conceptions of women in the medieval period are quite interesting. Um, they are basically exactly the same as uh, they were in the ancient period, um, only uh, we get a little bit more advanced in terms of medicine in the medieval period than in the ancient past. So we are working here on concepts of the humors, um, and this holds true for uh, in terms of Europe up until the 19th century when we discovered that germs exist (laughs) and everyone realized humors aren't real. Um, But there's this idea that the universe as a whole and the body as well is made up of four humors. And, you know, kind of in the universe, and the physical world, these are air, fire, water, and earth. In the human body, these are blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. And these things are all in balance in everybody's bodies. And if they go out of balance, then this is what makes one become ill. Now, as a part of this, men are perceived of as being hot and dry, and women are perceived of as being cold and wet. Um, And so there is this automatic kind of assumption that women are sort of the opposite of men. Um, And we see this even in the ancient period from very famous physicians like Galen, who was a Roman physician. Um, And the way that he also writes about women holds true in terms of how people in the medieval period think about them, which is that women are kind of like an inside-out man. Um, And uh, this is also a philosophical way of seeing women. So, for example, Aristotle thinks this. Um, And what Galen says about it is you can kind of see this all by looking at the genitals. So, where men have external genitals, women's genitals are internal, and it's basically like you take a penis and move it up into the body, and that will kind of create a vagina. Uh, The testicles sort of become like ovaries. And this is how you know that women are different. Um, There's a lot of frustration about the state of affairs from physicians at the time um, because women are seen, therefore, as being kind of secretive. Because they have all this stuff and you can't can't look at it, right? It's inside. And so, like, what's going on with them? Um, So oftentimes when people write, uh, for example, medical works about women, they'll be called sort of the secrets of women and this kind of thing. Luckily, we learn a little bit more in the medieval period as time goes on about this because uh, dissections are allowed to happen uh, once in a while. Now, you have kind of a ban on dissection in the uh, ancient world. People often think that's medieval. It's not. Um, so uh, the ancient world bans dissection uh, because they're they're worried that if you open up um, a dead body, then bad humors are going to come out and then everyone's going to get poisoned, this sort of thing. Um, but medieval people, every once in a while, you're allowed to to have a, have a little dissection party, um, depending on where you are as well. So, for example, in England, it's more common for it to be banned, whereas in the Italian states, it's a lot more common for it to be allowed. So anyway, they can have a look and say, oh, all right, I see what ovaries look like, I see what the womb likes looks like that's fine but fundamentally there's just always still this frustration because it's like it's one thing right to be able to cut open a dead woman and have a look at that and it's another to try to treat that when you can't even see it interestingly also in terms of humoral theory a big way that women are looked at is you know the so the aging process is perceived as a process of becoming colder and wetter until you die um and so when we are born children we're all pretty hot and dry and then as women cool as they get older That's what starts the process of menstruation. So it's perceived that menstruation is a result of the body being unable to burn off excess blood, and so it gets rid of it instead through the menses. Um, so this is really kind of seen as linked specifically to aging in this way. It's kind of an ingenious way of thinking about it. it you know, if, if you if you believe humoral theory, it sort of it kind of checks out, right? Uh, but then there's also, as a result, um, a big worry. About uh, menstrual blood, and so this is another one of these problems about women. Is they have all this stuff you don't have to worry about with men, and so menstrual blood, because it's thought of as being kind of built up malhumors, is seen as being poisonous. And people will say, oh, you've got to watch out for menstrual blood because it can uh, dull mirrors and corrode steel, and it's poisonous, and uh, you know you could poison people with it. And um, or even more worrying, there's legends where women who aren't menstruating. So for example, um, women who have gone through the menopause, it's not seen as like, oh, well, they've run out of eggs, you know, and they're no longer menstruating, which is what we know it is now. They say, oh, well, they can't even expel that blood anymore. So all of these bad humors are now building up inside of this. And then as a result, there's a worry that old women's looks can be poisonous. So there's kind of a worry about old ladies killing babies in the crib with their poisonous glances because they can't get rid of their menses. Um, So, you know, uh, there's a lot of wild things uh, in there, but I think the important thing to kind of keep in mind, as, as really over the top as a lot of these beliefs are, you have to keep in mind that this was consensus for thousands of years. You know, I'm not telling you anything that the Romans didn't believe, you know, and so it isn't particularly medieval. It's just, it turns out that you really do need to invent scientific inquiry in order to get rid of a lot of this stuff.
1: Oh, thank you for bringing us onto this, because there actually we've had so many questions sent in, particularly about menstruation as a topic. It's a big topic of interest. So I also wanted to ask you, how did medieval women actually manage menstruation and all the symptoms that came with that?
2: You know, these poor women were working through everything, God bless them. Uh, So, I I just feel terrible for them because they were still out in the field one way or another. Um, in terms of managing it, you know, it's it's definitely seen as something that is tiring and debilitating. And when we look at men- medical manuals surrounding this, everyone acknowledges that it's it's not a great time. And you will occasionally see things that say, you know, it is probably a good idea to let women rest up on these days. You know, like probably don't don't make them plow. You know, <laughs> this kind of thing. Um, But in terms of just managing the bleeding, you know, this is kind of one of those time-honored things where, you know, women are kind of making pads out of rags. This is the major way that you kind of catch menses. Um, And there are a couple things that they can do with this. Now, a lot of women wear kind of tights sort of situation underneath their clothing, especially in the winter. You'll have... Um, kind of woolen leggings Um, and then you would just kind of like pop your pad in there and hope for the best Um, in the summer when you're not doing that they kind of make belts and sort of tie them around themselves uh, which are not too dissimilar to what you see from if you go back and look at uh, menstrual pads for example from the 40s and stuff like that when they have belts that's it's kind of a similar vibe as that Um, But as a general rule of thumb, most women have so much work to do that it's just kind of like something that you've kind of got to grit your teeth and get through. Uh, We know they're certainly experiencing discomfort and pain from it. It's really common for women to present to medical authorities and say, you know, I'm having, uh, you know, issues with menstruation. Um, And we see this also in medical manuals. So, for example, uh, the Trotula, which is a very uh, famous medical manual that circulates really broadly in the medieval period and is written by a woman, has varying things that you can do for menstrual cramps. So, you know, you can make kind of medicines to to tamp this down. So we know that it is a concern for people and it's something that they're having a look at. Um, And if you're at the highest echelons of society, say you're a queen or something, you can Kind of say, no, I'm sorry. I'm calling in sick with with my period. I'm not doing it today, you know. But obviously, it really depends where you are. And you know someone has to feed those chickens, no matter whether you're on your period or not. So it turns out you know peasant girls are probably going to have a lot more that they have to do
1: on a similar note. I wanted to ask you a little bit about fertility and childbirth. Do we have any evidence of rudimentary forms of birth control or anything like that?
2: So we don't have birth control in the medieval period so much as we do now, because you know that takes hormonal regulation. But what we certainly have is kind of essentially abortifacients, um, and they're kind of used in a sort of birth control way uh, because you know if you take it early enough, you know who who knows, you know. And oftentimes this will be referred to in medical guides as something to bring on the menses. And now sometimes that could just be that you haven't had your period for a while and you're trying to jumpstart your system again. But also, we think that it can mean... That it's being used as an abortifacient, especially when we look at the ingredients, and oftentimes they will include pennyroyal. And pennyroyal is a really, really effective abortifacient. So, you know, basically it's one of these things where you might just be sipping pennyroyal tea all the time and then that kind of works in this particularised way where it just, it essentially stops um, embryos from being able to embed or gets rid of them if they are in there. So that is kind of the equivalent of a birth control.
1: So taking the other side of that then, and talking about procreative sex, what would it have been like for women to give birth in the medieval period? Do we know about that side? Oh,
2: we know rather a lot about it um, because this is this is sort of like the thing that's expected of women, right? Is that um, when you're a woman, you're going to become a wife and mother and that is that is what is expected and wanted of women in general. Um, and so we know a lot about it and we know that this is, you know, a particularly feminized time of life because often women are looked after by midwives, you know, not physicians. Um, and, you know, as you probably just gathered from everything I just said about uh, medical theories about uh, women, you know, it's it's not as though medicine was very workable at the time anyway. So, it, you know, it doesn't matter if you trained at Salerno, that doesn't make humors real, you know. Uh, so, but, you know, midwives have all this lived experience in terms of delivering babies. Um, now, it was incredibly dangerous uh, is the the first thing to keep in mind. And women die all the time in childbirth. Um To be fair, uh, childbirth is still incredibly dangerous. And if you consider that the rates are still fairly high now, imagine how much more so when you couldn't get a blood transfusion or, you know, you you don't have these really high-grade painkillers that we have, you know, things like this. So women often die, and this is like one of the big things, that if you make it through childhood disease, that's like step one into living a long and healthy life in the medieval period, and step two is surviving childbirth if you're a woman. And if you can survive childbirth, you might live into your 80s quite easily. So as a result of this, we see midwives being a very honored profession. And we also see some really interesting charms and things that are um, used in childbirth. Um, The Welcome Collection has a really amazing one, which is kind of, it looks as though it's a measuring tape. And it has prayers to the Virgin Mary all around it. And you would take that and kind of bind it over your middle during the process of giving birth in order to get extra protection from the Virgin Mary. Uh, But, you know, by the time we are resorting to prayers for the Virgin Mary being tied around our waists, that probably lets you know how dangerous this is conceived of as being and basically what the stakes are for women. So, you know, obviously people take a lot of joy in motherhood and they enjoy, you know, their families and things like this, but it's always, always a gamble. And it's a really difficult thing to kind of come to grips with because the thing that you're expected to do is also the thing that is most likely to result in your death. Um, so it's it's a really fraught kind of area.
1: Another one the huge things obviously people associate uh, is the marriage and then the babies. So what was marriage like? Were there any particular customs? What was it like for women who didn't get married?
2: Was that an accepted thing? Oh, so sometimes women don't get married. Um, And it is vaguely accepted that this is something that could happen. Um, Women are more likely to not get married if they have money, right? Uh, You you know, women are more likely to, if they have enough land from their parents, you know, say you're an only child or that sort of thing and you know that you're going to inherit it, then that's fine. Um, Or say you know a trade and you can make your own way in the world, then that's entirely possible. Um, It is always kind of viewed slightly with suspicion um and there is a real worry about women on their own as independent entities so for example a quite common thing here in england would be that if single women show up to various cities they have to become a part of a household within a week or they're asked to move on so like so for example southampton has this on the books like you you can't just come into town and be an, un, an unmarried woman and say i'm just setting up a shop that's not Allowed, So you either need to go into service for someone or you need to find some people who are going to vouch for you because there's just this worry about what single women on their own are going to do. Um, On the other hand, as far as the church is concerned, the best thing that a woman could do is never marry and join the church right? So, there's always a kind of constant war going on, whereas uh, from the point of view of families, the best thing for women to do is become family members. But the church is always like, do you want to be a nun? You want to be a nun? You want to be a nun? Just the the whole time. And um, we have whole really interesting tracks. Um, There's a, a great English letter that I love called A Letter on Virginity that is written specifically to young women and saying, oh, you don't really want to get married. You don't really want to um, deal with all of this because you might die in childbirth. It's really painful and terrible. Um, If you do become a mother, you're just worried about your kids the entire time. And what if they die at a young age? That's going to be terrible for you. You think you love that man now, but in 20 years, you might not love that man. Um, There are so much more work for mothers to do. It's really, really difficult to come in from your farm work and have to look after your children. And, you know, it kind of just states what all the difficulties are uh, with motherhood in this really, you know, point-blank way. And uh, they're saying, well, you know, why not join the church? You know, you could then keep your virginity, which is what Jesus really wants. There's some choice words about how, how much God loves virginity, obviously. And they're like, and you avoid all of these terrible things. But then, so there's also this kind of worry then also about single women in groups. That's kind of like the, the final worry, which is what happens when they all get together and none of them are married. And we see this happen, you know, so women will, uh, you know, start businesses together or, you know, kind of clump together in particular ways and nobody likes it. They just don't, they're not sure what to make of women like this and I've got some great records from 14th century Prague where you know there are women who are running a herb shop and uh, some of them are married but none of them are living with their husbands and they're all living together and they run this herb shop and they get reported to the archdeacon and they're sort of like well what's the problem with those women and they can't say exactly what it is they think so they just say that they are suspect women they are muliaris suspecti and they just think that it's it's a, it's suspect that they're living together what and what are they doing Nobody knows, right? So y- it's possible to live as a single woman. It's, it's something that happens, but people don't like it because women are perceived as being kind of unruly. Women are perceived as being in highly sexual um, and, like, prone to kind of, like, lascivious outbursts. And it's always seen as a result that it's best to keep women under the control of men because they kind of know what's best and they can keep women out of trouble, Is it possible to dodge that? Yes, absolutely. But it's always easier if you'd already been married first. So it's a lot easier for a widow to say, no, I'm sorry, I'm not remarrying and kind of like move on with her life than it is to stay single and out of the church and out of trouble more generally.
1: I think one of our common perceptions that we have about the medieval period is the getting married very young. But we've had a question from Maclean Powell on Instagram, basically asking about what was the marriageable age and also what was the age of adulthood?
2: So the age of adulthood for women is perceived as being younger than for men. So it's often perceived as being kind of like 15, 16. Having said that, the average age for marriage in the medieval period is in one's 20s, you know, like like it is now, still even, you know, marriage age is rising. But still, as a general rule of thumb, people get married in their 20s because, you know, they're... They're young people, and they want to see the world, and they want to try their options, and they just kind of want to see what's going on. There's a difference, though, in terms of rungs of society. So the reason why people tend to think that people get married is that royal people get married quite young, right? Because it's a business deal. Having said that, though, you know, if you ever read about um, a guy marrying a 12-year-old princess, they would just do the marriage bit. And then kind of wait, usually until the girl was sixteen in order to have any kind of sex. Um, and it, at times you can really be pulled up on that. So there are there is a court case from York, for example, of a girl who gets married, I think, at fourteen, and the guy is is pulled into court. And the little girl's like, "Nope, I absolutely wanted to get married. I was raring to go, and uh, you know, it was all fine by me. And because her parents had signed off on it, everyone kind of has to let it go, but." the point of this is it kind of shows that there is a concern about people being married too young and the ability of young people to make these decisions. So in theory, you can kind of get married from menarche, but it requires parental consent. And also, it's usually just going to be a religious service until something else happens. So it's a lot more like an engagement then it is a marriage marriage. And, you know, the great majority of people who are just average people get married in their 20s because that's was normal.
1: What about things like beauty standards? We've had questions from, like, Laura Lavender on Twitter, Denise Davidson, asking about, you know, did women wear perfume? Did they wear makeup? Did they remove body hair? What about that kind of thing? Oh,
2: they loved to remove body hair. This this is a a medieval obsession. And they remove a lot more body hair than we do. uh, Because one of the big beauty standards in the medieval period is having a really high forehead. So they're constantly kind of moving their hairline back and back and back, really up their skull, because that's what's considered quite sexy. So you see a lot of depilation in that area. You see a lot of plucking of the eyebrows, because they want to have really arched eyebrows, and they want to make sure that they don't have monobrows. Um, And there is a concern there. Um, They do remove hair from their legs, and sometimes also from their genitals. Um, And this is especially prevalent among higher class ladies. Um, And they do it in all kinds of different ways. You know, sometimes they do shave, but we've got lots of recipe books. So um, the trotula which I mentioned earlier – It started out as a medical manual to say, you know, this is how you help women give birth. And then eventually it picked up these other books that people were like, oh, yeah, Trotta of Salerno, she definitely wrote this too. Um, But it'll be like makeup recipes. And it will have depilatories and things in them. And I tell you what, some of them are just diabolical. Um, Some of them will, for example, involve quicklime. And, you know, I'm sure that it will take hair off. Uh, But, you know, I would also be worried about it taking off a layer of skin. And indeed, we also have kind of ointments that you put on afterwards in case you've left it on too long. And they'll say, you know, get it off really, really quickly. Um, But we also know they have tweezers and they just spend a lot of time plucking as well. Um, There's also kind of moral panic about this. So uh, people are always worried about that women are removing too much hair. And, uh, you know, these great stories of fathers warning their daughters off of plucking their eyebrows. And they say, oh, there was a, a man who had a very beautiful wife. And uh, she died early, so they paid a monk to kind of, like, pray and see where she was. And it turns out she was in hell, and she had demons gnawing at her forehead where she plucked her hairline back and where she was plucking her eyebrows. And that was her punishment in hell for being vain and, and overplucking. plucking uh, But also, makeup certainly exists. So we have um, lots of recipes that exist that make, you know, rouge or lipstick, um, we also have skin whitening agents. Uh, so, you know, like a, a lot of them, they t- just kind of come across as powder, you know, so you just kind of like powder your skin up nice and white because white skin is the thing that they're looking for. But they're really into white skin and then red cheeks, uh, which is referred to um, in poems as skin of snow and roses. So that's something that they're, they're always kind of going for. And they will also kind of have creams for if you've got too much sun, you know, if you've got sunburnt, you can put some aloe on. And, and we know they wore a lot of perfume. Um, there is a bit of a moral panic about perfume, specifically in the Islamic world and well, and there are kind of these uh, judgments about how much perfume one can wear. And it's decided that it's okay for women to wear perfume, but not so much that someone can smell her from far away. Because it's just too enticing. And if, um, you know, a man kind of across the room can smell your perfume, then you're being way too flirtatious. So it needs to be, you know, you have to be up really, really close to someone. So which is to say already an intimate relationship with them for them to be able to smell you. Um, And then, you know, with all of this, there are moral panics all up and down the shop about it. Um, You know, people will say that it makes you a Jezebel if you wear makeup, and you're misleading men. So similarly, uh, there is a court case that we have uh, where a man brings a sex worker in and says, well, she was wearing makeup, and I don't feel like I should have to pay her because she tricked me into thinking that she uh, looked a particular way. And the court sides with the man and says, yeah, the, the woman has to to give the money back, which is, you know, one of the silliest things I've ever heard in my life. Uh, But there you go. You know, so there is, you know, a a constant and ongoing worry that too much interest in meeting the beauty standard in using cosmetics is akin to sort of fooling people. But, you know, also it obviously doesn't stop women from doing it.
1: As my final question to you, is there anything that you think if we were to go back in time that would surprise us about medieval women or vice versa, that would surprise medieval women about the women of today?
2: I think that people would be surprised by how much freedom women actually have in the medieval period. I think that we would be really surprised to see how women are kind of thought of and able to navigate their world with a certain level of agency. Um, you know, Obviously, I wouldn't really want to trade with them, uh, primarily because I like antibiotics and I like living in now and things like this. But, um, you know, it is not like a completely locked down society that doesn't allow women any room to maneuver or any freedom to move around. I think one of the things that would really surprise women now would be how many unmarried women there are. And I think that they would be really, really shocked um, how, for example, you're just sort of allowed to have sex at this point, and that doesn't mean that you have to like marry a guy for life, and that you don't also have to give birth. You know, I think that birth control would really shock them, and um, you know, I don't think that they would think that it was much to write home about about how women are all working. They'd say, "Yeah, that's totally normal," and um, they probably also think our beauty standards are really different uh, because what they think is a hot woman is, and what we think a hot woman are, <laughs> two two totally different things. Uh, but I think overall, it would be a surprise that. Um, women aren't necessarily just mothers now and that there's a lot more going on for them.
0: That was Dr. Eleanor Yanniger, medieval historian, author, and broadcaster. Her new book, The Once and Future Sex, Going Medieval on Women's Roles in Society, is out now, published by W. W. Norton and Company. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.